All right. Welcome, y'all. Here, let me get in focus for you. <laughs> so, Although I know you really just want to read the books on my bookshelf because I know how you are. Um, anyways, uh, thank you everybody for joining me. This is a um, untypical, atypical live stream, but we're just going to be taking your questions from the live chat, interacting with your thoughts, sharing things with you, hopefully helping you learn to think biblically about everything. That's what this channel is about. It's not just about... Uh, pat answers. It's meant to be about biblically accurate answers. Now I'm being told by the internet that my stream bitrate is bad. Um, so let me know if you guys can see everything clearly in here. And I'm going to start today with um, announcements. I have several announcements and yeah, you see the Bible Thinker mugs behind me. That's part of the announcements we're making. Let me come to that in a minute. Uh, let me share a few things with you and then we will uh, go to your guys' questions and for the next hour, I'm all yours. Now, this ministry, first announcement, <clears throat> and by the way, I don't usually do announcements. Like, I, I like just getting straight into content when I do Bible studies. I do some, you know, topical thing. I just like to go straight into the content. I don't like tying it to, you know, this week in my life or this week in my ministry or this week in the world. I don't even do hardly anything current events related with the content I do online. Uh, that's just not my focus. It's not my heart. And um, a lot of other people are doing that. That's fine. But... Since I'm going to share some things, I may as well cram it all into one video. So here they are, a bunch of announcement things. Um, first thing, the ministry is becoming established. Uh, Bible Thinker started when I went online, a little backstory about the things that I do online. And I just started making video content that I thought was important, that I thought was valuable, that I thought was needful, and just kind of clumsily learning as I went, experimenting with different ways of doing video, different kind of styles of video content. And it slowly, very slowly over, it's been years, it's been like five years, almost probably almost five years of consistent content I've been producing. And <clears throat> um, it's become like its own ministry now. And that's really exciting to me. Um, and it's taken over my life. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer a on-staff pastor at my church. I'm still a pastor. I still teach a weekly service. I'm still accessible to people in the body for, for uh, counseling, talking, things like that. Um, as well as being there at the services to pray with people and things like that. But but I'm not on staff as like a, a pastor whose focus primarily is the, the the local body of Christ. My focus is international. My focus is is online and reaching people. And we're reaching a lot of people. You know, and, and on average, I think we're around 500,000 uh, views or more on, on, on a month right now. I think that's what our average is at the moment. And it, it can go up as well. But That'd be pretty reliable. And so the number of people that it's reaching is just blowing my mind. And I'm really excited about that because all the content is, you know, you know it, it's not fluff. I don't do fluff. I do careful, thoughtful, deep stuff. And it's exciting that it's finding its audience and that people who are, you're like me, let's face it, you're, you're like me, you're, you're going, I want meat, man. I want to go deeper. I want it to be more thoughtful. I want to answer rough questions, tough questions, but I want to be really faithful to what scripture says. I don't want to lose the heart of Christianity as I'm trying to get the head of it into, into uh, my life as well. So, if you know, that's happening and I'm excited about all that. <clears throat> Consequently, Bible thinkers moving from being sort of like under the umbrella of, of my church, of the church I, I've been attending for 20 years, to being on its own. Because it really is a parachurch ministry. And so we're now incorporated. Bible Thinker is its own incorporated, um, you know, entity. And we're getting, we're in the process of getting the 501c3. So this is requiring me to spend a lot of time not studying and actually filling out paperwork and working through. And by the way, LegalZoom doesn't help you as much as they say they do. We're actually hiring someone to come in and help us work through things because LegalZoom's 
overpromised and under underdelivered when it came to this kind of stuff. And so it's it's spending a lot of time. Me, my wife as well, volunteering a lot of hours trying to work through things and get it ready. When we can get the 501c3 status done, then we can finally fully transfer everything. So right now, if you're if you're uh, one of the supporters, you're still donating through the umbrella of the church, so that 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 uh, nonprofit status is there. Eventually, we'll get it for Bible Thinker, and then we'll switch all the donations over to. You'll still be donating to the same thing, but but technically, it'll be its own entity now. So we're in the process of all that, and thank you because uh, I, I I don't say this enough probably, and and probably the kind of people who are supporting this ministry, you don't care. But I do want to say thank you. Um, sincerely, deeply, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. You are allowing this thing to take place. This is a joint effort of the body of Christ. And as the people who come alongside and say, I want to help support this ministry that allow me to sit here and study and read and research and then produce free content with no paywall. That's my big. That's the big thing on my heart is no paywall. In anything I produce, as much as possible, it will always be free. And because of, of those who do decide to support I can put it out there for free, which means if you're listening to this and you've been enjoying hours and hours and hours of my content, you feel kind of guilty because you haven't given me any money. Don't. That's the whole point. Those who want to support out of simply desire and and they have the means to simply push the ministry forward, that's awesome. And we're very grateful. Those who, um, like me, for the majority of the years of my life, couldn't even afford to donate much outside of maybe my local fellowship and a couple small little things beyond that. I don't want you to feel bad. I want you just to be blessed. And what you can do to help this ministry is let it minister to your heart. Let it change the way you minister to others. Let it make you a better servant of Christ. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Anyway, um, I also want to welcome to the team. I I did this somewhat the other day. But we've we've had um, one of the volunteers who's helped us out over the the past couple years, I guess it's been, I think. Um, but even more so recently over the past several months has been Sarah Zimmerman. She's one of our mods who is in the live chat right now. She's taking your guys' questions so I can answer them in a minute. Um, and she's helped us out tremendously. She's been such a huge asset for for the ministry where I'm like not able to keep up with messages. And a lot of your guys' emails and messages and, and mail mailers and stuff like that to me have just been going unanswered because I just got like it was an avalanche and I couldn't keep up. And um, Sarah has taken up the charge and she's now you know, team Bible thinker is, is pretty much Sarah Zimmerman (laughs) and she's, and she's working on stuff and answering your guys' questions and she's just doing a fantastic job. So now you can be assured if you email or message us on Facebook or or through the biblethinker.org website, you're going to get a response from Sarah Zimmerman, um, who will forward me every day. She forwards me a few things that are like, Hey, you know, you need your attention on this. So sorry that that creates a distance between you and me. The truth is if, if not for her, Nobody will get through because I just can't read all that email. Uh, I can't read all these messages. I just can't physically keep up. So that's the best way to build that bridge. So I'm grateful for her. Um, she's doing a lot of other things as well, and she's on. She's 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 now officially like on staff, you know. Um, and and we'll be uh, we'll be here for the long haul, God willing. So I'm very grateful for her, her heart for ministry and all that. I couldn't. Yeah, I have lots of wonderful things to say about Sarah. All right. Also, the Passion Project. Here's another update for you. <clears throat> the Passion Project is coming along, but it's been totally delayed because of COVID-19. What we want to do, and we've received a, one donor in particular, donated a chunk of funds to help finance in-person interviews with the scholars. So for those who don't know, the Passion Project is basically this. I know the Passion Translation has a lot of serious issues. I want to cover it seriously and thoughtfully, but I'm not a Bible translator. So I actually hired a number of scholars 
to do official paper write-ups and reviews of different books of the Passion Translation. I didn't give them rules about how they had to interpret it. I was like, you know, I'm not I'm not specially picking people who were going to try to assassinate the, the the translation. I just hired scholars who were reputable, guys like Craig Blomberg or, um, uh, well, I you know I shared all the names and stuff of a bunch of different guys, but there's several guys that are involved that are have done a fantastic job. We have to edit some of their papers, which is typical, I think, with scholars when they send you papers. We have to do some minor editing for grammar and stuff like that. And then we're going to be doing in-person interviews because of the, the donor that supported that as well as some funds from Bible Thinker. But flying, flying around to do in-person interviews right now is a little bit difficult. So at the moment, it's just on pause. It will happen. It will get done. Um, but it's just kind of on hold. But... So that's the update for the Passion Project. I'm sorry, I don't have a I don't have a prospective date for you because I don't I don't see a way through at the moment. So we're gonna have to move forward once we can. Um, also, we're really focused on doing all the paperwork for the incorporation 501c3 stuff and still teaching the Mark series and preparing some stuff on Catholicism. Still working on that. And uh, yeah, also I've got Bible Thinker mugs. So <laughs> these are new designs of the Bible Thinker mug. And let me start by saying this. Um, this is my own decision. Um, I'm not receiving any funds from these. So Brent Zockel, who is a supporter of this ministry, he loves he loves Bible thinker. He's been following for a long, long time, um, but he's also a potter. And he just wanted to make these and make them available to you guys. And he was going to give me like a percentage, of like five bucks a mug or something like that. And um, I've asked him to stop doing that because that's not what we're about. And it, it's nothing's wrong with it. But and, okay, I'm a little weird when it comes to money stuff. Like, People will tell you I'm a little bit like strict. So I just don't feel comfortable about it. So what this is, is if you want to support the ministry, you can do it through the website, BibleThinker.org. This is just for fun. So I have links in the video description to different versions of the mugs. These are new versions. I, I think I like the, the white one personally. Also, um, there is the Bible Thinker magnet, fridge magnet. So you can see that here. And so it's just, you know, it's a fridge magnet. And so there you go. If you want to get one of these, because you're, you're a Bible Thinker. And then uh, I think though, I think actually my favorite is probably this little red one personally. Although, although I do usually grab a larger coffee cups when I have coffee. So there's a number of different um, designs you see here as well as like the tumbler version that doesn't have the, um, the uh, handle. So there you go. If you guys are interested, those are the links are down there below. Um, I'm not selling this for profit. I don't get any kind of kickback or something like that. Um, that's just my preference. And um, also, uh, last announcement and then we'll go to your questions the um which i do need to make sure i have my cell phone on me ah okay so i can get your guys questions the um uh i did an interview recently on cultish on the program cultish which some, some of you are familiar with this is with apologia studios so it was really really neat to get to partner with those guys i love those guys we don't agree on everything but we agree on the most important things and um and it was great to partner together and he they interviewed me on the topic of the world mission society church of god you've heard me talk about the mother god cult perhaps in the past and i did a bunch of extra new research i got new information and then i gave them like these two one-hour programs of just back and forth information, details about the cult. Um, that is up on their podcast right now. It will go up on, I believe, the Apologia YouTube channel sometime in the next month, maybe. That, that's not for sure, but that's like the time window I'm expecting. And whenever it goes up on their YouTube channel, I'll also upload it on my channel. So all that's going to be available soon. You'll get to see those guys um, like Jeremiah Roberts and stuff interacting with, uh, uh, with yours truly. So I'm going to go to your guys' questions right now, if I can here. 
Um, okay, great. So, <clears throat> all right, I'm going to try now for the Q and A. I don't make stuff up. I don't try to go beyond whatever my knowledge is. I'll give you the best answer I can. That's brief because I want to answer a lot of questions in the brief time we have. So here we go. Uh, John Perizzo says, um, how do you go about doing systematic theology on any given subject, such as soteriology? So there's different approaches to theology. Systematic theology, um, the, I'm not sure how much you want to lean on the term of, of systematic theology as like a method, but um, I tend to be a very much like a biblical theology kind of person so that I'm not, I'm not as concerned with creating a logical structure, which I think you might call more dogmatic theology style, where you have like a logical structure and you're trying to have this like perfectly tight knit logical structure, like as sort of, it sort of is front loaded in some people's theology. Like this has to all fit perfectly logically. Um, I think it has to fit, but I front load a bunch of passages. And that's like, that's like the first step I do for s studying systematically. I go, I, and that's what systematic theology often is. You gather a bunch of different passages that all bear down on a particular subject. So the deity of Christ or um, let, let, let's say the rapture. And so the first thing you do is you're going to gather every passage that people say might be related to this topic and you just put them all together. And then you're going to try to, you know, interpret each one in context, gather conclusions that you can get from each of those and then and then you, you know make sure that you're being consistent throughout and then that will give you the logical conclusion the framework at the end i think a good example of this is a study i did on um why god hardens hearts there's there's mika by the way for those who have missed mika she decided to say hi today um just her rear end though <laughs> um, so on the subject of why god hardens hearts um, I think the title was that, like, why does God harden hearts? Or perhaps it was something like the doctrine of divine hardening. At any rate, that was that video. I do exactly that. I systematically work passage to passage to passage. I draw principles and conclusions from the passages, and then I bring them all together at the end. Now it's important that at the end, you could, you could take all the principles and you make sure that none of them conflict with each other. You make sure none conflict with the verses and the passages in question. And that, that would be, Yeah gather the passages, do a verse by verse interpretation of each passage, draw principles out, make sure those principles are consistent with each other and with the different passages. There's my systematic way of doing it. Um, John Doe has a question. I was taught Christians don't sin. First John three, nine says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. Romans is littered with talk of free from sin. This isn't common teaching. Why is it wrong? Um, <clears throat> So you're taught, you were taught that Christians don't sin, meaning that like Christians never do anything sinful or bad. So here's a, here's a, a verse that you, you went to there, John, John Doe, probably not your real name. If it is, I'm sorry, man, if that's your real name. Stop playing with the lights, Mika. She's whacking my lights around. First John 3, 9, no one is who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So what you'll see in this verse, 1 John 3, 9, this is, this is the NASB. Um, here it is in the New King James. It will be different in different versions, so I'll give it to you in a couple. Um, Whoever's been born of God does not sin. Now, NASB said does not practice sin. And then the ESV, let me make this bigger. Uh-oh, yeah, oh, hold on, hold on. We got this. 
and the ESV has it written this way. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So what's interesting is the New King James, as well as the King James, as uh, they both say no one, you know, sins. No one born of God sins or goes on sinning. But in the NASB and the ESV, uh, newer translations, they say that they don't practice sinning. And the reason here is in the Greek, this is a continual sense. This, the word for sinning, the verb, it's, it's in a continual act. So Greek verbs can have a lot more nuanced meaning than we do in English verbs. So in English, if I want to say, I, I am continuing to run, I have to say that I'm continuing to run. I could say I'm running, but I might be stopping in a moment. But maybe I want to say it's ongoing. So I go, I'm continuing to run. I have to add another word. They can actually do that with, with just one Greek word. Of course, this means that Greek verbs sometimes get very long. You can have like a seven, eight syllable word in Greek because you're adding all these extra um, prefixes and suffixes and different pieces to the, to the verb to enhance the meaning. At any rate, the meaning here, I think correctly in the ESV and NASB is they don't make a practice of sinning. So 1 John 3, 9 is not a statement that Christians don't sin ever, like they just never sin, which of course creates a lot of weird, almost almost self-denial amongst believers when they try to proclaim that they've never sinned or that they don't ever sin. And let's notice this. It's every Christian in 1 John 3, 9. This, if, if you wanted to interpret that way and say, well, it's sinless perfectionism, it's not a state you arrive at slowly, according to 1 John 3, 9, if you interpret it that way, then you actually have to say everyone who's born of God doesn't ever sin, meaning anyone who ever sins is therefore not a Christian. Or you go the other route and you just deny the sins that you're committing and you say, well, I sinned, but it wasn't really me. And, and this is where I feel like we're, we're getting into weird psychologizing. It's much better to take the passage to say that a person doesn't go on practicing sin. Now, another way to prove this is that 1 John, before he says this in 1 John 3, 9, that no one makes a practice of sinning if they're born of God, he also, in 1 John chapter 2, he makes a, um, a statement that proves that he thinks Christians do sin. He says, my children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that I, as a Christian, I have Jesus standing up, you know, before God on my behalf. Meaning that after, and this is great for Christians to understand, even when they sin and fail, the thing that, that makes you right with God isn't going to be your works, isn't going to be anything good you do afterwards. It's not going to be fixing yourself. It's going to be Jesus standing as your advocate before God. That's what makes it okay. That's what makes you okay. At any rate, John obviously in 1 John thinks that Christians still sin. So 1 John 3, 9 is a statement about them not continually living in sin. So a person who just stays living in the ungodly, self-centered, sinful life that they had before they were saved, it's evidence that they were never really born of God. They're not earning salvation. They're showing that perhaps they were never really born of God. This is a hard teaching. I do think, though, that that is consistent. Um, let me, uh, I'm sorry the text was coming off the page. I just noticed that a little bit there. So, but there was more to your question, um, John. So let me, let me address that. You were taught that Christians don't sin, which I think is incorrect. And Romans is littered with talk of freedom from sin. And let me go to the Romans passage, too, to help us focus this. Okay, so Romans chapter 6 talks about this in particular. And I guess I can bump this over real quick. There we go. That's perfect. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is arguing, I think, about our position. Positionally, we're in Christ, and therefore we ought to walk in newness of life. It's so that we might, uh, not might meaning just a potential, but but rather a, a target or a goal, that we would have the goal of walking in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we're not to be enslaved to sin. This, I think, is um, similar to John when he's like, don't practice, don't walk practicing sin. Romans, don't be enslaved to sin. There is the life that shows that there is no lordship of Christ. There is no relationship with God. There is just a bondage to sin. That's the whole life. Then there's a life that shows the lordship of Christ. Now, does that mean a sinless Christian life? No, but there's a difference for the Christian. Uh, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, before I hit verse 12, which I think 12 and 13 gives us the clarity on your question. Um, Verse 11 up until from one through 11, what we're getting is this is this is who Jesus is. He's died and he rose again. And that's who we're called to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so it's arguing from the totality and the fullness of Christ and what he's done and our identification with it. But that doesn't mean automatically Christians never sin. I wish. I mean, this would be great. And that is our future, but it's not our present. So this is why he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, why does he have to command Christians about this if it's automatic, right? No, it's actually a battle that you go through. Do not present your members as sin, which means you could. You could present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so yeah, sin won't have dominion over you, but there's still a, a voluntary work that you have to partake of where you yield yourself to God. This is where we put off the old man and we put, and we put on the new. So that, that's what we see in scripture is a freedom we get from sin through Christ, but a responsibility to follow God in our lives. I hope that helps. And, um, yeah, I, I don't see any place for the doctrine of Christians never sinning. Some people just like, it makes them feel better, but I don't think it's true. Um, first last says, what are your thoughts on corporate responsibility for past sins and individual responsibility? Could, can both be true. I see both in the Bible. Um, okay. So corporate responsibility for past sins and individual responsibility. I, I would say we may have. I think it's kind of complicated first last. Okay. In the examples you give, 2 Samuel 21, I believe is the death of David's child after his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David murders Uriah, her husband, and then the child dies. But I would not say that was corporate responsibility because the child was not responsible for what David did. This was, I would consider, uh, to the child, this is like collateral damage. This is like, I'm suffering because of what someone else did, but I'm not responsible for what that person did. So that's where I go. Yeah, corporate responsibility, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way. However, here's a different kind of corporate responsibility. In the uh, the book of uh, um, Exodus and Numbers, 
we read about the children of Israel corporately deciding that they don't want to enter the promised land. And there's only a handful of people, Joshua, Caleb, who said, no, let's go in. Let's trust God. Let's go in. And so they, because of their, um, they chose to go with God and not go with the crowd, they're delivered from that that death at the end of 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Corporately, everybody who was yielding themselves to it, right, they're, they're responsible because they're all part of the same free decision-making group. Then they decided to rebel against God. So they all die. But even a couple individuals who go a different route, they get spared from it. So I, I think that I'm a little bit concerned about that kind of view of corporate stuff. Now, there's a third category I'll say. This would be, um, and in my opinion, that God seems to sometimes bring judgment down on people or on communities of people as a way of, um, uh, of, of doing both at the same time. And so sometimes it's okay for some of the people, they're all suffering because of their individual sins. Like they're all, they're all like their hands are, are stained with blood, so to speak, as a corporate body of people. But there may even be individuals that are unaware, that are just suffering as a result of God's ultimate judgment. But that doesn't mean responsibility. So there may be a corporate suffering that doesn't mean responsibility amongst every individual in the group. I hope that that helps. I may have just made it more confusing for you. Molly Thompson says, uh, Hi, Mike. Grateful for your videos. Can you explain the parable of the talents, <clears throat> Matthew twenty-five fourteen? What are our talents and why do the two get different rewards when both increased by 100%? Thanks. Um, so let's go look at that passage, Matthew 25, 14. <clears throat> I'm going to read this to us, this parable. And we want to ask the question of what are the talents? I think this parable is often um, stretched by people who teach it. So I'm going to try to offer... Uh, the application may not be that different, but I just want to offer an interpretation that doesn't stretch things. Matthew 25, 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted uh, to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his ability. Then he went away. So there's a man, he's got three servants. One gets a talent, one gets two, one gets five. Now, the first thing you need to know is this talent is not what you normally think in the English word as talent. It's not like one guy could juggle. The other guy, he was a good boxer and a comedian. He had two talents, right? And then the, the next guy, he's got five talents. You know, he could do all kinds. It has nothing to do with that. Talent's money. A talent is a massive amount of money, like a very large amount of money in their in their time. So this represents a huge investment. This this um, this person going on the journey is very wealthy and he, he entrusts his money to these different people. So he who had received the five talents went at once. Oh, by the way, it's according to his ability. So the amount of money that the landowner, the person gave to each of these guys was based upon how much skills they had, how much capability they had. So this is why they were given different, different amounts, which means that they each could have been faithful with what they'd received. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more so he doubles his amount so also he who had the two talents made two talents more but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money it's always ironic to me that it was the guy who had the least who was the most afraid and hid it that to me is very interesting that I would expect the guy who has the most, the five talents, to be the most scared. and But instead, he's just diligent and he does his job. But it's the guy who feels like, 
oh, I don't really have all the skill and I don't really have as much as other people, but I just don't want to mess up. So I'm just going to hide it. And that's what he did. Uh, now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you've delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Here's the irony. That is not a little. That is not a little. This is, this is I think, a significant piece in the parable that is often missed by teachers. Um, the five talents was a massive investment of wealth that this man had. But... By saying it's little in the parable, Jesus is showing us that the things we have in this life, even though even though we have maybe a lot of wealth or a lot of whatever it is that God gives us, a lot of capability to serve him or opportunity, whatever he gives us, even though we have tons, it's, it's just everything in this world is just so tiny and little compared to the glory of the kingdom to come. That is to say, the exchange rate between heaven and earth is so high that with all the money of the world, you just can't hardly afford a dollar of heaven. <laughs> and, and I think that that is... Good to keep in mind. Heaven's better. Heaven's better. So um, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And so now he's going to have greater responsibilities in the future. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you've delivered me two talents here. I've made two talents more. So he, like you said, he doubles it as well. He has a, a doubling increase of the amount of money he was received. He had received. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now, we don't know how much he gets set over uh, in this particular one. It's just this particular verse. It just says, I'm going to give you a lot. You, that was the little, I'm going to give you a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So he just gave him the one talent, the same exact amount of money that he received, he gives back. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Notice this, that his excuse is, I was scared because of your expectations. But the truth is, this person was wicked. I mean, what did he do? He went and lived his own life, did whatever he wanted. He didn't serve God in, in the, in the, in the par parable. Um, and he's slothful. He's lazy. The real reason you're, is you're lazy. This is what Proverbs says, like the lazy man says, there's a lion in the street. The, I love this verse because the lazy man, the point in Proverbs when it says the lazy man says there's a lion in the street is that there isn't really a lion in the street. The lazy man says there's a lion. He pretends that things are more dangerous than they are. Things are more scary than they are. So he can just not do anything. He can take no risks. He can just stay on his couch. Oh, there's a big risks involved. in. It. So he's wicked. He's lazy. And he, he's like, oh, I was afraid. But he should have been afraid of not doing anything. Um, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered uh, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. At least it would have been some profit, some benefit. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so this is like a <clears throat> about the coming of the Son of Man kind of thing. And what are the talents? Um, we could say the talents are just money. I, I know a pastor who says that the talents simply refer to money. God has given you a certain amount of money, and he wants you to invest it for his kingdom. And and then that's the application. How the, however, I disagree. Um, I think it's about stewardship, which applies to money, but isn't directly only about money. Other people, they actually take the word talent, and they think that the English word talent 
also having being a pun that that was intended by God. Like this was not written in English. This was written in Greek, translated into English. And I think that we're being a little bit silly when we go down that road. But the application's good. So in your whatever your abilities are, your time, your finances, your skills, um, op- your, the opportunities you're presented in life, using these for God's kingdom, realizing that they're an investment in you. And perhaps this could even speak of your spiritual gifts because those are specifically given for us to serve other people with and to, to make sure that you're actively living your life to seek first God's kingdom, kingdom and righteousness, that that really matters. Now, you, you might be bothered because it's like, but what about the one who gets cast into outer darkness? Well, I think that the reason why perhaps this bothers us is because we're thinking about it like it's written, like it's being spoken to New Testament Christians who are believers. But Jesus is encountering, in a lot of the parables, he's encountering Jews at the pivotal time when the Messiah is arriving. And they're going to find out if they have been waiting for him properly. And so we're going to see that, like in the case of like scribes and Pharisees, um, they they ended up not bearing fruit to God properly. So this this may have application to them as well. So I hope that that's like a, helpful summary. Um, you asked the question, why do the two get different rewards when both increase by 100% thanks? Um, well, I think that they both increase by 100% true. And in this case, their rewards don't appear to be different. But there's another parable where it's like two cities and 10 cities and they're, they're reigning over a different number of cities. So they, they do seem to have different rewards, the same parallel type parable. So for that, I would say, well, you know, the guy that had the five talents did more. Like he just, he did more. Now it was according to his ability. So maybe he had more greater ability. So yeah, he, you doubled, but you doubled more. So that, that is, yeah, I think it's more. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, let's see. Here's a uh, question from Kaylin Van Conant who says, uh, and by the way, I recognize a lot of your guys' names. Like Kaylin, I recognize your name. You've been with me for a long time. Uh, maybe I missed the part in the video, but men who abuse their wives emotionally, physically, etc. What does God say about it? Um, well, I mean, I I think the short answer is that they should be brought up on charges. They should be persecu- prosecuted according or persecuted, <laughs> prosecuted according to the full extent of the law. I think that's entirely right. I was a domestic violence counselor. The guys who I actually did counseling with were guys who've been convicted of DV and they were required to do 52 weeks of counseling. The, the court does prefer to put guys like that in counseling for character change as opposed to in prison when possible. Um, so I think that's true. But I also think that if if a, if someone is physically abusive in the true extreme scary abuse type sense of the word, um, truly terrorizing their family, then they are then if the family flees and leaves them and separates from them, then that is that is their fault, not the family's fault. So that's a justification for separation. And if they persist in this behavior, continuing to force a separation, then I think they're guilty as though they separated. Catch it. This is very important. I think they're guilty as though they're the ones separating from their family. And when you're when you have a an unbeliever or a or a supposed Christian who refuses to listen to Jesus or the church, who refuses to be with you, maybe through violence they refuse to be with you, then you're free from that relationship. That's a super short summary. I think that a lot of other things have to happen in the midst there: getting pastoral counseling, uh, seeking restoration, trying to build and reestablish bridges, and also making sure that we're not overstating the abuse. But guess what? There are situations where it's going to be, I think, totally legitimate. And um, and I, anyway, I go through that in more detail. I talk about the Sabbath and um, sanctity of life and things like that to support that. Jasmine Martin says, 
What are the biblical definitions of sin, transgression, and iniquity? How can I be certain that my sins committed knowing that I committed knowing that they were wrong are forgiven? This is a great question. So I don't personally see a tight, clear, and clean definition between sin, transgression, and iniquity. Transgression sometimes seems to be a more extreme thing, like sin as sort of a generic sinful thing, iniquity, um, close to sin, maybe a slightly different connotation, and transgression seems to be referring to more, maybe a more deliberate, more willful type sinful behavior. But I don't think that they're like in these three sort of separate boxes. They, the words seem like they overlap to me. As I've, in the, if I remember, it was quite a while ago when I did this. But as I tried to sort of like create definitions for these words, when I went to the scripture, it didn't seem like they would they would fit my definitions. So they may just be that their words they overlap each other somewhat. Now to your second question, how can I be certain that my sins I committed, knowing that they were wrong, are forgiven? I think that this actually highlights, um, I'm sorry, I'm still on that passage, <laughs> um, highlights one of the things that we have in the gospel of Jesus that we didn't have under the law. Under the law, high-handed sins would, in, in some cases, be unforgivable. It would be like you just, you can't be forgiven for those sins. But the New Testament tells us that in Christ, and so you, so you can read those passages, like in Leviticus, like these high-handed sins, these presumptuous sins, and you're like, nah, you're you're on your own. You did, you did this full will and knowing and everything. And maybe this is what was going on with David, right? When King David killed Uriah, he writes Psalm 51. And he's like, look, I'm, I'm guilty of blood. And you, you, know, you don't delight in sacrifice. Well, people foolishly take this passage as if it's an argument against sacrifice. David's using it in a context. The context is I committed a murder full knowing there is no sacrifice in the law for me. If you, if, if, if you had a sacrifice that would allow me to be forgiven of the sin, I would give it to you. But there just isn't one. And so he appeals to another sacrifice that God would simply wash him with hyssop, which did involve sacrifice, but he's asking God to be the one to do it. Jesus comes and fulfills this. And the New Testament tells us that in Christ, we can be fulfilled or we can be forgiven for the transgressions that could not be forgiven in the law. Here's the point. Christians can be washed clean of even high-handed, presumptuous, full well, you knew you were, what you were doing was wrong sins. Because Jesus gives us a new law and a better law, a new command, a better command, a new sacrifice and a better sacrifice. And he covers more than what was uh, dealt with in the law. So that's, that's the encouragement to you is, um, yeah, check out the book of Hebrews. Um, yeah. So let's, let's take another question. Um, Mauricio, Mauricio says, what are your thoughts on the new perspective on Paul? It's a fairly new idea, mostly talked about in academia. It's a bit confusing for me. It, it's confusing for them too. <laughs> and I want to know if its implications are true. Thanks. Well, I can't say that I've spent as much time on the new perspective on Paul as I'd like. What I have spent, here's my current position understanding on it, is that I love the new perspective on Paul and I hate it. And I, I love it because it puts a real emphasis on understanding Paul in the first century Jewish context in which he's writing. I really like that. Um, I think some people make a mistake of going, of reading, I'm going to be technical here, of reading too much rabbinic literature into what Paul's saying. We have rabbinic literature, like in the Talmud, that comes sometimes from way after the time of Paul. And if we, if we sort of like teleport their ideas onto Paul, like, like Paul's dealing with that, that can be um, 
a bad idea, right? And maybe it's better to look at the intertestamental literature between the Old and New Testament if we're going to get that Jewish context. But I like that they want the Jewish context. I'm all about get the Jewish context of these things. However, I think the the conclusions that sometimes they arrive at when they talk about Paul and, and what he meant by the gospel of grace and they sort of start reimagining and really, I think, distorting what Paul's actual message of the gospel was. And that's a significant thing. And that I hate about the new perspective on Paul. And because it's so confusing, a lot of people are being drug alongside it, not really understanding it. Um, like guys like N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant guy I respect. He's done tons of great work. And he's also done some stuff that I think is, it's, I'm going to risk lightning bolt hitting me for saying this, but I think is misleading and muddy. I think that sometimes when he talks about issues, he doesn't get into the careful nitty-gritty details. It's like he's telling a story, and then you just have to sort of say, okay, he probably knows what he's talking about. He's like super smart. And I think that that's what happens with the new perspective on Paul. People are like, well, Jewish context, Judaism, Jewish, Jewish, the story of Israel. And here's my new conclusions about theology. And I think that's what happens. I think you're feeling that when you're like, I'm confused, but I realize their conclusions in some cases are pretty weird. That being said, within the new perspective on Paul, there's like a, a hundred splinter groups or there's a bunch of different views and they don't agree with each other exactly. So they agree that these Jewish insights are helpful in understanding Paul. They disagree on what to do with them in the end. So yeah, um, great observations and some problematic conclusions. I don't think we need to substantially reinterpret what Paul, what we've understood Paul is saying in uh, Galatians and in Romans and these places. I think that we've understood him properly and when we try to get away from his concepts of justification, his discussion about grace and salvation being uh, apart from works and stuff like that. When we're trying to get away from that. I feel like now we're just, we're stepping in a landmine. And yeah. All right. Rose Pink says, uh, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and Eve and uh, good and evil just to test Adam and Eve? Well, maybe it was just to test Adam and Eve. Um, but it's part of a larger story than that. Here's what I want to say to Rose, though, it is... Let's say hypothetically that you look at what God did in the garden and you honestly say, I cannot think of a single good reason why God did that. I wish he hadn't done that. I wish he didn't do it at all. My thought is this. You're just a human. And to second guess God, like it's one thing to say I don't understand, but to second guess God, to say, God, if, you, if your actions don't seem to be things that I like, then I'm going to reject you is to me the height of arrogance and folly. And I say this as, as, a, as a hope, I'm hoping to protect your heart. If that's you or anybody else who's listening, that's you. And you're thinking, why did God do this in the Old Testament? Yeah, I, I disapprove of that. I'm like, this is God you're talking about. He's right and you're wrong. This is like the easiest equation in the world. He's right, you're wrong. This is not a popular apologetics argument from apologists, but it probably should be. Is that if God says it, if it's really him talking, if that's really what he does in scripture in the Old Testament, he really did that thing, he really put a tree, then it was the right thing to do. And you don't understand it because you don't understand lots of things. There's all sorts of things you don't understand. I find out all the time, you know, you, you watch a news article, you read a news article, watch a news program, you go, man, that guy was so wrong. And then you see the other the other camera footage and you're like, oh, well, maybe it was a little bit more complicated. You know, sometimes we, we go, oh, I have new information now. Obviously, with the Garden of Eden, there's all sorts of things you don't know. Give God the benefit of the doubt um, in that case. So yeah, um, now in the long run, I think that perhaps the reason had to do with the fact that God wanted to play out not just Adam and even the fall, and that's probably what you're focused on. Like, but the fall's so terrible, like we could have avoided all this. 
But God also wanted to play out salvation in Christ, the love of God, the drama of Jesus, God taking on our form. I mean, the intimate love of God for us to take on our form, live in our place, die for us, rescue us from sin. And you can't say, well, God put us in this problem to fix it. No, he allowed us to, to create the problem ourselves. He did fix it. And in that creates a beautiful, loving, redeeming relationship with us where he shows his goodness and his compassion and his love. I, I see the beauty and the goodness of it. And I think that in heaven, I think that in eternity, we'll look back and we'll say, everything was worth it. God, everything was worth it. You worked it all together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So um, I find that to be a satisfactory answer. And I think that anybody reasonable should, even though sometimes our emotions don't let us do that. Um, <clears throat> let's see. This question is from Alicia Henderson. What, what advice would Mike give to a woman, a woman interested in apologetics ministry? How could one pursue this calling, staying within the parameters set in scripture? That's a good question, and I actually am not sure all of, of where and how you answer those questions. Um, that's a great question, Alicia. So what I would do is I would get involved with women in apologetics. This is an organization of women who are doing apologetics, right? And this is um, people, people who I am friends with are involved in this group. And so get involved with them and ask them, and ask them for wisdom. And like, how do you guys navigate this? What are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, they, um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I think it gets kind of complicated and you start to ask questions like, okay, well, what exactly, um, what do I say yes to? What do I say no to? What, what opportunity should I jump at? What, what opportunity should I pass on? And I, I think those are challenging questions, but I encourage you to get involved in apologetics, Alicia, and, and and dig in and make a difference and start looking at other women who are doing it well. Look at uh, Elisa Childers and, um, you know, she, there's a, there's a, I would consider her a friend. We don't talk often, but I'd consider her a friend and she's involved in all that stuff and would be a, a good, maybe a good role model for you. Um, and Natasha Crane, who's a, who's a friend, she's a, probably another good person to look at and ask her those questions because she struggled through that. She's talked about it with me before. So yeah, check them out. Golden Child says, if the punishment for sin is eternal suffering, how did Jesus suffer temporally, uh, temporarily? And uh, I actually have answered this question before, Golden Child. I'll say this is, please go look at my series on penal substitutionary atonement. It's a playlist on my channel. It's on PSA, the whole doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, penal meaning penalty for those who have junior high level sense of humors. And um, that is a, a, a thorough and thoughtful series. I dealt with this issue in detail there. My short answer is this. The penalty that we suffer, which I think is eternal conscious torment, I think it's everlasting. And perhaps I could be wrong there. I think you could be a Christian and not hold that view. That's what I, I lean towards that view. Um, but let's say that that's correct. How could Jesus' suffering equal that? Well, I, I think that we have to understand something is that when a person is in hell, they aren't actually like fully paying for their sin. They never fully pay for their sin. There's never a point at which it's like, okay, price paid. They can never be in hell and be like, to tell us die, paid in full. It's never paid in full. And that might be why it goes on forever. It's never fully paid. The debt's never paid. The And, and the relationship is never restored between them and God. Jesus on the cross fixes both those problems. The debt is paid and that's when you get out of prison, right? When you get out of prison is when the debt's paid. So Jesus's life is of such a holy value that it can pay in a, in, in a single death, it can pay for the sin cost of all mankind, whereas their death wouldn't even pay it. 
they would just be suffering as a punishment but not paying off so to speak so yeah it's uh, you get out when your debt's paid jesus he pays the debt so you get out right away he gets out so to speak right away um, not that not that i'm not saying he went to hell in that sense uh, that some some people say some strange things all right that one christian has a question and we're going to take just a couple more um, is there any evidence for the biblical exodus and if there is will you be making a video about it um because i think that would be very helpful especially for witnessing yes and yes i'm gonna totally i gotta do this and let me actually see if i can find um what you can look up for this okay because there's some great and new resources on this exact topic um okay there's a guy named titus Kennedy, Dr. Titus Kennedy, T-I-T-U-S, Kennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y. Titus Kennedy has some free um, interviews you can find online, either on YouTube or other sources as well. And I think they have a, their book may be out or it's on its way out. Um, him and Stephen Meyer. And if you know Stephen Meyer from the, uh, I think I have like Moxie's cat hair, like floating on my nose. Anyway. Stephen Meyer and him did tons of work on this very topic of the Exodus, and they gathered different streams of um, evidence that it's just solid, it's very good, and it's very strong evidence for the biblical Exodus. One of the reasons why people would think that we have no evidence for the Exodus is because they, step one, they ignore the timeline in the Bible, and they pretend the, they say the Exodus should have happened hundreds of years later. Then they say, hundreds of years later, we have no evidence for the Exodus. But if you go back to the actual timeline that the scripture seems to indicate for when it happened, there's a lot of really good evidence. I do think I should bring on these guys, uh, maybe Titus or maybe him and Stephen Meyer to talk about this topic uh, at some point. That would be a great idea. Cat17 says, how strongly do we need to believe that Jesus is Lord to be saved? I know the Bible talks about just having a mustard seed of faith. Some days I have a lot of faith, but sometimes I still have doubt. I think that faith is a choice that you make. And so thinking it's true, I think it's true, while also having doubts, but I don't know how to answer this, or, I, or sometimes I just feel like I wonder if maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's true, but I'm not sure, but I'm wondering, but uh, I don't think that this is an issue at all. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's bothersome, it's annoying, it's not spiritually fun. But I don't think it's an issue in the sense of being accepted by God. Faith is a choice. Faith is a decision. Okay, Lord, I trust you. I choose to trust. I fully believe that. And some people act like, well, you can't choose what you believe. Yeah, but faith isn't just belief. It's a decision to trust someone. In this case, I'm trusting Christ. Okay, I'm going to trust you. So when you, when you trust fall, as an illustration, right? You guys know the trust fall thing. You do that, ah, you go down. In trust fall, what if you were to ask me, Mike, how strongly do I have to feel good about the people who are behind me before I can fall? I would say that the the internal struggle of, I'm not sure, will they really catch me? Am I going to be okay? That can go on. The question is, do you fall or not? Do you say, God, I trust you, Christ, I trust you, I rely upon you or not? That's a relational aspect, isn't it? Now, I don't do trust falls. <laughs> Having done youth ministry for a number of years, I don't do trust falls. I'm not trusting anybody to catch me. It's, no, no, I don't think so. But when it comes to Christ, I trust in him and I fall on him and I rely on him. And I think that we have a scripture that really encourages us here is the man who came to Jesus 
and he asks for healing. Jesus says, yeah, anything's possible for him who believes. And the man says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Here's a man who's wavering between belief and unbelief, and he makes a decision relationally. I'm going to trust you. I acknowledge I got these things going on in my heart, but I'm trusting you. That's totally acceptable to God. So what you, what you need is the decision to keep the faith, to keep the trust in Christ, uh, even though you might be wavering at some point or feeling totally uncertain about things. Certainty is not necessary. Um, in fact, some people mess up Christians because they, they actually get Christians to think we have to have 100% certainty in order to trust in Christ. I don't think that that's remotely true, and I think it's unwise to try to take such a burden upon yourself. I mean, do I have to have 100% certainty before I pull out into the street to make a left turn or right turn? Well, I, I'm, I'm confident that it's clear. Are you 100% certain? There's no possible world where someone could suddenly turn a corner and hit you? No, but I mean, I'm, I'm confident. Like, I feel good enough to move forward here. <laughs> and I think that uh, when it comes to, to Christ, you don't have to have 100% certainty. Even though some people may well have that. They may well have that. But that kind of certainty is more like a psychological condition than it is anything else. So it's almost like people are trying to scare you out of your, your psychological certainty and then get you to, like, reject Christ. Well, I'm, I trust Jesus, okay? I rely on him. And I think that that's the right thing to do. Okay, well, I hope that this has been fruitful for you guys. Uh, I'm going to call it for today. And, and here's the thing I'm debating. Let me know what you guys think. If... If these Q&A videos, my thought in the past has been Q&A videos, I feel like, oh, they're, you know, I put up a lot of Q&A videos. I feel like it may not be as helpful as the stuff where I study and prepare. My off-the-cuff off the answers aren't as thorough as when I just sit with something for an hour or 20 and just really work on it. So if you like these videos, if you want me to do more Q&A videos, I want you to just put in the comment section, like, you know, do more, uh, more Q&A or something like that. And if I get a good response on that, then I'll consider doing more of these Q&A videos because I want to meet your needs and bless you and minister to you. I just don't want to have my channel filled with content that might be less helpful to people because it wasn't prepared, careful, thoughtful stuff. And But maybe maybe this is, you know, you tell me what, what ministers and, and helps you and I'll adjust. So uh, thank you everybody for being there. Uh, God bless you. Thanks again for... Um, your support, those who are supporting the ministry, I'm so grateful for that. I apologize, I haven't had a cat cam recently. I have the cat cam ready, but alas, there is no cat at the moment. <laughs> She's sleeping somewhere else. So yeah, take care. Lord bless you. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Be in fellowship right now. And, and oh, there's an encouraging word I have for you to close. And it's this. For those of you who are missing church and you're missing fellowship, um, maybe you're missing it somewhat, you're, you're not going as much, or maybe you're not going at all. I think right now it's even more important for you to practice spiritual disciplines like prayer time in the morning when you get up, time reading the word, time of, of, of being spiritual, whether you put on worship music and you seek the Lord. You need to encourage yourself with those spiritual disciplines more because for some of us, your spiritual disciplines were largely um, held in place by your attendance at church and your fellowship with Christians and that has dropped to some extent, which is not good but it's revealing that you need these things as daily practices in your life. So I encourage you to start doing that, even right now, before you do anything else, turn off the video, go spend five minutes, pray to the Lord, seek him, uh, go, go uh, read the word um, and get those spiritual disciplines going. Maybe incorporate them into your family if you never have before as something that you guys can do regularly. Make it simple, make it easy, make it, make it something that you can do sustainably. And um, yeah, that's my encouragement. Keep your eyes on the Lord. 
Take care.